following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Some of you may remember where you were when the final episode of the TV series MASH was shown. Now some of you say, okay, for me it wasn't MASH, for me it was Cheers. Or maybe you say, no, no, I was the, the episode, I remember that Seinfeld, that last Seinfeld episode, or maybe it was Friends, the conclusion of Friends. Or some of you say, I remember the party we had to watch the last episode of Lost. Anyone have a little party for Lost? And you're just glad that it was over and everyone stopped talking about it? Okay, a couple different angles on that. But you may have remembered the conclusion of a historic series. And this morning is the last Murder in the Garden episode. I know. You'll never forget where you were when this moment happened. We had to keep the media out just so that you could appreciate this final episode. There may be a mixture of emotions, laughing and crying, bittersweet, but either way, without further ado, would you direct your attention to the screens for episode five, the conclusion of Murder in the Garden. Previously on Murder in the Garden... Adam, I messed up. The forbidden fruit. Every last bit of it, I ate it until it was gone. We have to leave. Pack our bags and get out of here. How do you feel after eating the fruit? I realized something. What? I don't have a belly button. You don't? No. What's a belly button? I don't know. Adam, I don't think this dress is made of fig leaves. Oh, great. It itches real bad. Poison oak. How come you don't itch then? I have fig leaves. Why would you give those to me? You're an animal. I don't know. Adam. Let's just be mature and own up to our mistakes. You know this is all your fault. But you ate it. Well, how am I supposed to think clearly when I'm missing a rib? Seriously? Rib stealer. And this coming from the guy who gave me a poison oak dress? Adam, listen to me. We have to make this work. This is forever. Just you and me. And I'm pregnant. Okie dokie. Adam, you know pregnant means I'm having a baby, right? Wait, what? And who's the father? We are literally the only two people on Earth. A little emotional. I'm just going to miss those two. 
They really enriched my life. You know, I just feel better because of them. The story of Adam and Eve is, it's really the beginning of a saga. It's a mystery, a murder mystery, really. And really, if you, if you understand humanity as one giant epic story, like one giant narrative, then this chapter, right in the beginning, chapter 3 that we've been studying, is extremely significant. It's like if you're watching an adventure movie or a thriller, and the first couple minutes of the movie are fine, everyone's getting along, and then the tension is introduced into the movie. The problem that has to be solved. That's what chapter 3 is in the whole story of humanity, the grand uh, narrative, the huge epic, the saga that you and I are a part of, Chapter 3, what we're studying, when they eat the forbidden fruit, they commit that crime. That introduces the tension that we're unpacking throughout the rest of humanity. Their little act of rebellion to take the fruit and to eat it is what brings all the pain and all the hurt and all the evil into the world. And it helps us understand the whole story. But it's also not just helpful from a macro perspective, on a micro level when we look at their mistake, at their act of rebellion, at their sin, we see in them the same habits that we fall into. We see the same assumptions, we believe the same lies, we react the same way. And so if we can pick apart this chapter, this crime, this act of rebellion, this sin, then we can see that we do some of the same things. It helps us understand ourselves, how we fall into some of the same traps and can help us avoid making some of those same mistakes. This morning in particular, we're going to look at what happens after they commit the crime. What's their reaction? What happens in the cover-up of the crime as these two culprits try to escape? What happens? And we're going to find that we do some of the exact same things. If you'd open with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 6 together. That's Genesis 3. We're going to start in verse 6. It's going to be up here on the screens. If you have a Bible, you can turn there in your Bible or a Bible app. You can find it there as well. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now here it is. Here's the moment. Here's the crime. Look what happens. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Right there, that's the crime. Seems so simple. So small, so little. It's just this, they eat a fruit. They make this little tiny meal out of a fruit. And that's the whole crime. She takes this fruit, she gives it to her husband. You just have a, a wife giving to her husband a piece of fruit. She eats it, he eats it, she's taking it from the tree. I mean, just a small little moment, a small little meal that they eat. And from that, all of humanity is taken down. I mean, think about the verbs in that verse. Take the fruit, give the fruit, eat the fruit. Think about those so simple, those little verbs. You don't see any words like assassination, scheme, plot, slander, blackmail, murder. You don't see anything like that. Just three 
little verbs, take, give, eat. That's all you see in that chapter. And in that little verse, in that little moment, that is the mother sin that brings forth rebellion in every single, all throughout the world, in every single life, rebelling against God in that one small moment. Now here's how the Bible presents this moment. Eve is the one we see having the conversation with the snake. Eve is the one that is presented, has been deceived. But Adam is the one that's going to be ultimately held responsible. Eve is the one that's deceived. She's the one dialoguing with the serpent. She's the one that's talking back and forth. Adam's standing right there. He's not intervening. But ultimately, Eve, it's the, it's the woman who takes this fruit, she gives it to her husband, she takes it, she eats it, but ultimately it's Adam who's held responsible. It is him that God, he'll hold each person responsible, but chiefly it's on Adam's shoulders. In fact, look at how dramatically it's put in other places in the the, uh, Bible, in the New Testament. This is how strongly, how squarely it's on Adam. Go ahead and bring up Romans 5, 19. Look what it says. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's talking about Adam, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's us. One man's actions, when he takes it and eats it from Eve. That's when all sin comes into the world. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 21. For as by a man came death. Again, talking about Adam. Through this man, he was responsible. He was, he was there to work with his wife in this garden. But God holds him squarely responsible. Adam, through you, death was brought into the world. Now, it's such a small little crime. They eat this little fruit. They eat this little meal together. And that act of rebellion separates humanity from God. Now, this is the crime. That's the crime. That's the moment. Now, in every crime, in every good crime, murder mystery movie that you watch or crime show, when the culprit commits the crime, there's immediately a cover-up. Like if you're watching a story or you're reading a story and the person commits the crime and immediately feels bad and turns them in to the, the police, local police center or whatever, that, that is going to be a very short movie that's going to be pretty uninteresting. No, there's always some kind of cover-up because that's true to life. And what we're going to see next is a cover-up. There's all different kinds of cover-ups. Maybe one type of cover-up is you create an alibi. You can't look guilty if you committed the crime, you can't look guilty, so you've got to create, oh, this is where I was. No, no, I wasn't there. I don't, no, I'm not guilty. See, I was here, and that person can collaborate. You create and invent an alibi, cover your bases. That's one way of covering things up. Another way that you, you might just simply flee, run away. You might flee the country. If someone's committed a crime, sometimes they might just run away, trying to avoid being held accountable. They might flee, fl- flee the country. Third way is you might frame someone else. Maybe you've got the the murder weapon, and you go plant it somewhere else so it looks like they're the ones that did the crime. They're the ones that are guilty, but not me. No, it's them. Look, see? See the evidence? It was them, not me. Well, here's what we're going to see. Let's see how they covered up their crime. Look at verse 7. Let's keep going. This is Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife 
hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now look at this cover up. It's a couple different kinds of of, uh, ways they covered up. The first is they sew fig leaves together. The first thing that happens is they realize their shame. They realize they're naked and they cover up with fig leaves. That's the first thing. The second thing, they hear God walking in the garden, so they run and they hide. They hide behind trees. They want to stand in God's presence. The third thing that they do is when they've finally been brought out, there's no escaping, they blame shift. Adam, what happened? Well, it was Eve. Eve, what happened? Well, it was the serpent. And they cast blame. Three different ways they covered up. In fact, the first one is actually kind of like an alibi. They realize that they, they realize their shame and they try and cover up how they look so they no longer look flawed. Now think about this. This is a really interesting thing, reaction to their sin. This has been the state that they've been in this whole time. At the end of Genesis 2, it says you had Adam and Eve, you had the two of them in the garden, and it says at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. And now in this moment, they commit this crime and suddenly they, they change how they feel. Suddenly they feel shame and they, create, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Now this is odd. This is weird. Why would they do that? There's no one else in the garden. It's just the two of them. There's no one else. There's no one else that would see them think that was weird necessarily. They, God hasn't started walking in the garden yet. They haven't heard God yet. It's just the two of them. So who are they covering themselves for? They're ashamed to be in each other's presence. Well, this is interesting. All of a sudden, an impulse has entered into their minds that's brand new to them. For the first time, they feel vulnerable. Exposed, insecure. For the first time, maybe they realize that they're, they're now flawed and they're ashamed to reveal it to each other. Maybe they saw it in each other's eyes. Maybe for the first time, they see a critical gaze as they look at each other. I've never felt that before. Maybe for the first time they see a a condescending or condemning or self-righteous look from the other as they see each other now as flawed people. One of my favorite uh, preachers, writers, uh, thinkers, his name is Tim Keller, and he puts it like this. In, In studying this passage, he says, their acceptability had changed. That's the phrase that's used. In other words, at one point, they were pure and innocent and holy, and they were completely acceptable. They were completely could be accepted by each other. But now that has changed. They're not so acceptable anymore, and their impulse is to cover themselves and change how they look so that they look more presentable to each other. But then they hear God walking in the garden, and they run and hide. They, they can't feel shame 
in God's presence. They know God, they've walked with God, but they can't bear for him to say, you've sinned, you've messed up. They can't, they don't want to face that, they don't want to be in his presence, and they run away. They flee. It's the getaway. They run away, they don't want to be in his presence, they go and they hide. And what's the third one they do? Actually, they frame each other, don't they? They finally have been brought, they can't escape, and what do they do? They blame shift. I'm not the guilty one. No, no, look, it's Eve. Eve, see, she's the guilty one. Eve says, no, I'm not the guilty one. It's the serpent. It's the snake that deceived me. It's his fault. See, what they do is they're, co- they're constantly trying to find ways to cover up the fact that they've committed the sin and that they are now flawed. Now, our hypothesis for this series is that this that we're reading about is the mother sin. In other words, through this, all other sins happen. The sins in our life, the mistakes, the failures, the flaws in our life come from this mother sin. So our hypothesis is, if we can study this mother sin and and look at the DNA of this, then we can find the DNA of our sins. We can find, okay, the same impulses and patterns and lies they believe are the same things we're going to believe. And as we pick this apart, we see that their impulse when they sin, when they've made a mistake, their impulse is to cover it up, and that's our same impulse. I want you to think about in our life, isn't that true that that's our first instinct? Even if you've, we've done something so bad that it can't be covered up, isn't that still our impulse? I'll never forget when I had first started to drive. I was 16, and I, from time to time, got to drive my mother's car. And the way that it would work is that my mom, she liked to park her car in my parents' garage. And my dad had set it up, so it was this perfect system. He had bolted down a 2 by 4 on the floor of the garage so that we knew exactly where to pull up to and stop. And it was, I mean, scientifically engineered. So the garage door could come down perfectly in the back. And then at the front of, of the, where the car is, at the back wall of the garage, you could still open these accordion closet doors that are right there. You could open them all the way. And it was a scientifically proven for you to come in and know exactly when to stop. Well, one day I was driving, I was going a little too fast, and you know that two-by-four bumper that you feel when you're coming in, you're easing into the garage? Well, when you're entering into the garage at 37 miles per hour, you don't feel that two-by-four so much. And I was telling you how there were these accordion closets on the back wall of the garage, they're not there anymore, okay? What happened was, and the way it went in my mind, is I ramped off the 2 by 4 The car is in midair in the garage, and the back wall and the accordion closets explode, okay? Now, I'm sitting there in my car. There's drywall on the hood of the car. There's wood splintered in every direction, okay? The accordion doors are just this tangle laying all around the car, and I'm thinking to myself, how quickly can I rebuild those closet doors, <laughs> Can it be done in 30 minutes? I've never done that before. Can I rebuild those? And as I'm sitting there, the car is still running. I'm plotting and scheming. What's going to happen with this closet door? The door into the garage slowly opens. And the worst conceivable fear, standing in that doorway, is my father. And his eyeballs are on fire. Literal flames coming off of his face. Now, 
after years of therapy, I don't even know what happened next. I blacked it out of my mind. I don't even know what the punishment was for that. But when we mess up, when we sin, when we commit some kind of crime, that's our first impulse. How can I cover this up? And we do this in three ways. Every one of us are challenged to do this in three ways. Here's the first one. We try and cover ourselves. It's a covering. And what that means is a covering is when I can't admit to others that I'm flawed. This can be more than just trying to escape out of coming up with excuses or, or pointing in a different direction. No, it wasn't me. This is, can be more than that. This can be a pattern, a deep-rooted pattern in our lives where we are constantly trying to cover ourselves with metaphoric fig leaves because we can't present the real, our real selves to someone. Let me paint a picture for you. Maybe it's a guy by the name of Dave. Dave's been coming to church all his life. He has a family. They, they go regularly faithful to church. He's got a wife and he's got kids and they, they come all the time. But see, Dave, he just can't present himself as flawed. He has to look perfect. His kids have to look perfect. His wife, everyone has to come as if they've got it all together. So they come to church. Everyone's, they, as soon as they walk through, there's the expectation from that family that everyone acts like it's all together, it's all perfect. Because he can't afford to show any kind of flaws. And so when he goes to community group, he doesn't really share vulnerably. He doesn't really say, well, I'm struggling with that. He doesn't let down his guard. But he's not willing for someone else to see his flaws. But he's willing to help people with their flaws. So he'll be the fixer. But he can never be the one that needs fixing. He'll be the first to offer help. But he's never the one that can receive help. He just can't do that. Because he just can't let someone else know that he needs that. But unfortunately, that's not just in his friendships. That's entered into his marriage as well. And there's this coldness in this marriage because he never lets down his guard. He never shares what he's struggling with. He never shares vulnerably. He just can't do it. He's got to keep his guard up. The problem is the more he's doing that, the more under the surface, the more he's trying hard to work to present someone that's got it all together, the more the secret sins in his life that he knows about are just raging. In fact, maybe what it is in his life, he can't understand why he can't get past the sin of pornography. He can't understand why this has grabbed a hold of him so much and he can't let let it go. And see, what he doesn't realize about having the secret sexual sin like that is it's flowing out of his impulse to never be vulnerable. Because with something like pornography or something like a secret sexual sin like that is it's sex without the vulnerability. And what makes it even more dangerous is the more that he holds on and tries to handle it himself and doesn't let anyone know, the more he's spiraling down into those sins in his life. But maybe it's not Dave. Maybe it looks like something else. Maybe it's a woman, we'll say her name is Julia. And she's, she's got fig leaves, but they're a little bit different. Her fig leaves is she's got bouncing around in her mind things and words that were said to her that always told her she wasn't acceptable enough. 
Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was her mother always putting these huge expectations and she never felt like she was good enough. She never felt like she could do it. And her mother was always picking at her and saying, you could do this better and do this better and look better and act better and run your home better. And so she's never felt like she's been acceptable. She's so aware of her flaws, but she can't let anybody see it. So she's got fig leaves. They're her kids. And her mind, if she can present kids that are perfect, have it all together, then she may finally feel like she can be accepted. So her kids, they have to be perfectly well-behaved. They have to always perfectly look well-groomed. They've got to be smart. They've got to get good grades. They've got to be athletic. They've They've got to have all these things together. They've got to be popular. They've got to have the trendiest clothes and look a certain way because if she can make them look acceptable, maybe she will for once feel accepted. The terrible irony of that is as she's doing that, she's placing the same expectations now on her kids. And maybe now her daughters will grow up with some of the same phrases bouncing around inside their heads, never feeling like they measure up. See, we... It's a huge danger when we try and put fig leaves and we can never present ourselves as acceptable. We feel like we could never be flawed before someone else, so we cover ourselves. But that's not the only thing to do. The second thing that we do, we don't just cover up. We try to hide. What's hiding? Hiding is I can't admit to God that I'm flawed. If covering is I can't admit to others that I'm flawed, hiding is I can't admit to God that I'm flawed. We'll say it's a young couple. We'll say it's Tom and it's Sally. They're this young couple. They grew up in church all their lives, they, they grew up in a good, solid homes that knew about Jesus, and they, they grew up in a, a youth group where there was Christian friends around them, and let's say that they, they were doing great when they were in high school, and then they go off to college. And there's a problem. See, when they were in high school, there was all this positive peer pressure, all these Christians around them, and Christian friends, and they're all hunkering down and doing the right thing, but they go to college, and they're not ready for the barrage of temptation that hits them. And they mess up. They make a mistake. Maybe they fall into sexual temptation. They fall into sexual sin. And now all of a sudden, they can't stand the thought of being before God. They just feel too much shame. So what Tom does is he stiff arms God. He runs away. He can't pray. He can't read his Bible. He can't go to church. He can't even talk about God, talk to God, think about God. And he just needs to run. He just needs to get away from God. He can't stand the shame. They can't believe that he's done the things he's done. And he's trapped in the things he's trapped in. But to excuse himself, to excuse himself from running from God, he finds reasons to be mad at God. He says, God, I, I can't believe you did this. and It's really your fault because of that. And Why would you allow this to happen? He's mad at God. And maybe he takes it a step further. And now, for the first time, he's coming up with reasons why he doesn't even believe in God. And he knows all the answers to that. Maybe he's even helped people with answers to that. But now he's motivated to distance himself from God and justify why he's running from God. And so now he's not even sure if he believes in God. Sally, she takes a different tactic. She needs some distance from God, but for her, she needs distance from God's people. And now all of a sudden, she thinks that every time a Christian friend is looking at her, they're pronouncing the judgment of God on her, so she has to isolate herself and distance herself from Christian friends, and she's saying, I can't be around them. And now she needs a reason that she's distancing, so she she figures out reasons she's mad at them. She's mad that they're so judgmental and she's mad at what they've done to her. They've, she's mad of all the things that they're thinking about her. She needs a reason to justify why she's isolating. And all that's because she can't admit that she's running from God. She can't admit to God that she's flawed. 
The third one might be the deadliest. Third one's blame shifting. Blame shifting is when I can't admit to myself that I'm flawed. Maybe it looks like this. It's a guy by the name of Steve. And Steve can never, ever admit ever that he's, been, that he's wrong or that he's messed up. He just can't do it because he can't admit it to himself. So any conversation he has with his spouse where she tries to speak into his life and bring some correction, doesn't matter how she does it, when she does it, in what way she does it, what words she chooses, he finds a way out of it. He gets mad and intimidates her or he wiggles out of it or he has excuses or maybe he just turns it right back on her and she attacks back. He just can't hear it. And so what's happened is his wife is isolated in this cage where she's living with someone who refuses to change and refuses to, seem to, to, to understand that they're flawed. And this spouse is sitting there all by themselves. She's alone realizing for the rest of her life she's locked in this cage. And there's no culture in that marriage where she can bring correction and speak into that life because he can't admit to himself that he's flawed. But maybe it doesn't stop there. It probably bleeds into his friendships. And there's no godly friend that could ever sit down and say, hey man, are, are you okay? It seems like you're struggling with this. No, he could never hear it. And if he can't find a way to justify it or rationalize it, he'll attack back. And maybe he'll just attack the way that they're bringing it to his attention. Well, I can't believe you're saying it to me like this. And Matthew 18 says this. And if you knew what the Bible said about how to confront someone about this, you wouldn't come at me like this. I'm not, I can't listen to this. Find a way to back out of it. And here's what the terrible irony is. While he's working so hard to convince others in himself that he's not flawed, he's just cementing his own flaws and everyone around him is completely aware. It's so obvious to them. But Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's a woman. Maybe her name is Mary. And maybe it runs even deeper for her. It's not just something she does. She doesn't just wiggle out of of confrontation or correction. No, she, it runs deep in her life. She is adopted as her mindset that she is a victim. And everything that happens, everything that she does wrong, it's not her fault. Well, it's because this happened in my past. And it's because of this happened. It's because they did that. It's my parents did this. And that one person who broke my heart. And this person, it's what you're doing right now. It's what you're doing. And everything of her life, it boils down to her being victimized and not needing to be held accountable for anything she's done. And all of that is to avoid that she, thinking that she's flawed. And again, the terrible irony is the more she's alone, percolating on her flaws, marinating in those flaws, the deeper those flaws will run in her life. It's like a bandage just thrown on a wound. The wound's not been cleaned out. The wound's not, the infection's not been cut out. It's just a bandage that's been wrapped around a wound. Hopefully that wound will just go away because I'm not going to face it. I'm not going to address it. I'm just going to cover up that wound. But what's going to happen? It's going to infect the arm. It's going to become gangrene in the arm. And eventually you won't just have a cut or a wound. You'll lose a limb. Why would we do this? Why wouldn't we just stop and say, God, I'm flawed. Why wouldn't we be able to admit it before others? Hey, it's no surprise to you. I may think I'm fooling you and thinking that I'm, that I'm not flawed, but you know and I know, all of us know I'm flawed. And I can be a fellow flawed human being with you. Why can't I just stop and admit it to myself? Why am I trying to avoid this correction? I need it and every human does. Why do we try and cover up? Why do we avoid these flaws so much? Because we don't understand the gospel. Or we've forgotten it. Or we've left it behind. 
the beautiful message that God looks down on all of us and we are flawed, but he loves us anyway. He accepts us anyway in our flawed state. And he sent Jesus to take our flaws on him who was, he had no flaws, he was flawless, and he took all of our flaws and he washes them clean. And if we can go back to that, we can say, of course I'm flawed and I'm a sinner. And my life can reflect that. And of course I can dig in and and find correction. Of course I can stand before you as a flawed person. See, what Jesus did is he, he gave us these powerful ancient symbols, two in particular, two powerful ancient symbols to remind ourselves regularly that we need the gospel. And we're celebrating them both this morning. The first is baptism. See, baptism is this dramatic, bold symbol that each one of us, when we've been rescued, when we've put our faith in Jesus, we publicly declare, we're saying, my sin is dead and buried. My my sin, past, present, and future, is placed on Jesus on the cross, and it died with him. And so I'm going to, in front of everybody, I'm going to be symbolically buried under the water. My old ways are buried. My old past is, is cut away from me, and then I come up out of the water, and I'm walking in new life. I'm a brand new person permanently and perfectly washed clean. And it's the symbol, it takes boldness. It's this symbol that, it's this bold declaration that I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am flawed and I need Jesus. And you know what, what's ironic is some of these same ways we cover up are sometimes the same things that keep us from wanting to be baptized. We say, well, what are people going to think? I mean, what if someone, well, what if someone thinks, man, I can't believe they're just now getting baptized? Oh, I thought they were farther along in their faith than that. Or, man, what dramatic thing happened in their life that they're getting baptized? Or maybe it's just something simple. Of, I just don't like how my hair looks when I come out of the water. You know, I don't, what will people think when they see me like that? And the same things we said, ah, I'm just, I, I don't know if I, if I want to do that. It's just such this weird dramatic step. Of course it's dramatic. Because the gospel is dramatic. And some of you this morning came here having, baptism wasn't even on your mind, but God's nudging your heart right now and he's saying, you know what, I want you to take a bold step this morning. Well, I need to think about it a little bit more. I need to process it. There's nothing to think about. Jesus commanded us, hey, be baptized. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent and be baptized. Say, yes, I am a sinner. And be baptized, demonstrating to all those that you have been, your old ways have been buried and you've come up out of the water. Maybe some of you today say, you know what? No, I'm, I'm drawing the line in the sand today. I'm being baptized. Why? Because it's this incredible message of the gospel. What Jesus did to undo the drama that took place, that crime that took place back in the garden, Jesus undid it. There's an Old Testament scholar, his name is Warren Gage, and he wrote about how Jesus undoes what Adam did. I mean, check out these verses. Remember these verses we just read, Romans 5, 19? Look at the rest of the verse. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Look at the second part. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians. Look at the rest of the verse. For as by a man, Adam, by a man came death. Look at the second part. By a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 22. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, our Savior, undoes everything that Adam did. Do you remember the story? They're in the garden. God pulls dust out of the ground, breathes in and makes Adam. He basically pulls Adam out of the ground and breathes into him. And then God has Adam go into a deep sleep and he does surgery on his side and pulls out a rib and makes Eve out of the side of Adam. And then he says, okay, you're here in this wonderful garden, but remember there's a tree, but be careful, there's death hanging on that tree. What do they do? They, they sin, they share this meal together. And what's the first thing that happens? They realize that they're naked and they're shamed by their nakedness. And they stand before God and God says, okay, here's the consequence. And he looks at Adam in particular, he says, here's the consequence by the sweat and toil, the sweat of your brow. You as the gardener, no longer everything works together perfectly. Now you'll, you'll strive and you'll try and you'll bring forth thorns. And he actually says, by the sweat of your brow, you will produce bread. It'll take hard work and, and toil and pain to produce bread. And then they're kicked out of the garden. Can you imagine the tears as they're forced to leave the garden as sinners? But Jesus undoes all that. He's a man, sinless, standing in a garden on a Thursday night. And there's a great toil and pain before him. So there's sweat on his brow. And all that hard pain that he's going to go through, part of it is going to be thorns that are brought forth and placed on his brow. And then they strip him naked to shame him. And they place him on a tree. And he embodies death. He is taking death on. He is death on a tree. And he goes into a deep sleep, the sleep of death, and his side is wounded. And blood and water flow. That blood will save his bride, the church. And they take his body and they lay him back down into the ground in a tomb. But it doesn't stop there, does it? On the third day, he rises again from the dead. And where is he? He's back in a garden. It's just him and this woman named Mary Magdalene. She's got a dark past. She's got an evil darkness that she's carrying around. And she's not literally, but she's symbolically, there's a man and a woman. There's, it's symbolic of who his bride is. And what does he call her? He calls her woman, just like Adam called Eve. He says, woman, why are you crying? And what does she think? Who does she think Jesus is? The gardener. And what a gardener he is. Planting a garden one day that will all spend eternity. All of us who are in Christ will spend eternity with him. And he says, you're in the garden, but there's no more place for tears. He's undone everything that's happened. He undoes it all restores, redeems. He wants to restore and redeem our lives. You know, it's so interesting about that story of Adam and Eve. 
in the garden, there's two different types of food that are mentioned in that story in Genesis 3. One is fruit, and the other is bread. The fruit from the tree that would bring death, and the bread that would happen from his toil. But there's another time that the new Adam, Jesus, he provides a simple meal, and it's of bread and fruit. This is what he said. It's in Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's a simple meal. And did you notice there's simple verbs? He takes the bread. And this time it's the husband providing for his bride, the church. And he provides this meal for us throughout the centuries. He takes the bread and he takes the cup and he gives it to us. And he says, eat. He's undoing the meal that once brought death is symbolic. This is a meal that symbolically brings about life. This morning we're going to take this meal. It's bread and juice and there's nothing magical about this moment. It is purely a symbol. The bread is a symbol of his broken body, the toil and the pain that he underwent on our behalf. And the juice is symbolic of his poured out blood that was shed to bring us life. Now this morning you may be here and you say, look, I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus. And so here's what I'd say. If you're not sure, I'd ask you to hold off from taking communion this morning. As you just would hold off this morning because this is a declaration that you're saying, I have been saved by Jesus. I am proclaiming, I am flawed. I am a sinner. I'm confessing that to God and I'm saying it was his death on the cross that saved me. It's the fact that Jesus undid everything. That's the only way I can be saved. But maybe you're here and you're saying, I want to make that decision today. I've been thinking about God or running from God or hiding from God or trying to make myself not be flawed or trying to prove to myself that I'm not flawed and I'm good enough to get to heaven. But here's the honest truth. I am flawed and I need Jesus to undo it all. And maybe this morning you say, I'm drawing the line in the sand. I am accepting Jesus. Jesus, you're my savior. Jesus, bring redemption into my life. Jesus, wash me clean so that I know I am permanently sinless in your sight. And if that's you today, maybe the first step you take this morning in saying, I am receiving Jesus as my Savior, is maybe you take communion with us this morning. There's a tables in the front and also in the back. And in a moment when you come forward, if you've known the Lord, and this is a re-celebration for you, a decision that he led you to many years ago, then you'll see there's plastic cups here. But if today you're saying, this is the first time I am making that decision, putting my faith in Jesus for the first time, here's what I want you to do so that you always remember. When you come up here, you will see on the edges, you'll see there's wooden cups. And when you take one of the cups, if today is your first time you're putting your faith in Jesus, I want you to take one of the wooden cups with you. And I want you to take that cup so you can always remember today is the day you put your faith in Jesus. 
just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come out into the aisles. You can go to the back or you can go to the front. You're going to take a piece of the bread and you're going to take the juice and you're going to eat the bread and drink the juice on the way, on your way back to your seats. And then we're going to close in a song together. Church, would you just bow your heads before the Lord and prepare your hearts for what you're declaring? Will you intimately confess openly to God right there in the privacy of your seat that you're flawed? You're not going to hide it from God anymore. You're not going to hide it anymore. This is who you are. And you're declaring today that Jesus washed you clean. begin coming forward or heading to the back now. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.